Hello and welcome to Get Mad with Vesper Moore, your place for all things transformative mental health, mad pride, and disability justice. Remember, oppression thrives off isolation. Connection is the only thing that can save us. That is the quote of today's guest, Yolo Akili Robinson. Yolo Akili Robinson is an award-winning writer, healing justice worker, yogi, and the founder and executive director of BEAM, the Black Emotional and Mental Health Collective. BEAM is a national training, movement-building, and grant-making organization dedicated to the healing, wellness, and liberation of Black communities. Join me in welcoming our guest, Yolo Akili Robinson. Hey, Yolo. Thank you for joining me in the Get Mad studio. It's so great to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. All right. All right. So I think there's, there are quite a few things that we could talk about. There's so many different things. Um, I enjoy your writing. I enjoy a lot of the work you do in the community in general. I love the work of the Black Emotional and Mental Health Collective, right? So, um, but I, I wonder if we could just start off with like, how did you get into this work? How did you get into movement work in the context of mental health and Black and Brown folk? Um, where did that start for you? Yeah. It's such an interesting question when I get asked it. Um, I look back on like my journey in my life and I've always had a, a, a natural interest in, thing, in things that led to kind of where I am currently situated, you know, um, just like even in high school, being really invested in like being a peer mediator and conflict resolution and de-escalation. And, and then um, of course, going to college and really getting immersed in black and women's studies, which I often say that like with black cultural studies and I would say with gender studies in general, they really sparked my interest in psychology and mental health because whenever you're talking about gender or race, you're talking about, even when we weren't using that language of trauma or when we weren't using that explicit language, um, we were talking about dysregulation and trauma in a lot of different ways that we didn't re we recognize. And so that kind of propelled my interest in psychology and mental health and wellness, um, really kind of buttressed, to be honest with you, by like the, the queer community in Atlanta, which my community was mostly like, you know, black queer women who were challenging me, being kind me, growing with me and learning around that intersection of really uh, healing and, you know, uh, and justice work, you know? So I was created like Georgia State University undergrad, um, that work, and then um, the work doing work around reproductive justice, which led to my work around HIV and AIDS and um, domestic violence, quote unquote, as people frame it. So yeah, so it's been a long journey, but I've always had an interest. Um, I think particularly the more I learned about the state, the more I learned and had language for the state of the communities of my community, like there were things I was saying, I had language for it. And then also began to have tools to understand things could operate differently or be visioned differently. That led me to be more propelled to like, how do I do work that helps that visioning of something different come into, come, come into life? 
or how do I build something to help that different vision come into life? And I think that's really what drives me is like something different that is potentially more dynamic and loving as possible. What can I do to help make that possible for people, for ourselves, you know? I love that. I love that. And I think, you know, Beam like accomplishes that in a lot of respects. And the, the reason why I say that is because I think given the state of our reality, the state of the world, you know, and so many of the things that, that are happening, often when we think about concepts of wellness, we don't think about wellness as liberatory. We think about wellness in the context of capitalism. Uh, let's do some yoga. Let's do some of these activities, right? How can we make private industry money? But we don't think about how it's liberatory you know, for black and brown communities and many other communities in general. Could you talk about wellness as a tool for liberation as a part of Beam's mission and what y'all do? Yeah. You know, I struggle with so much of the limitations of our language, right? Like, you know, like I like, cause wellness, like it, as you were sharing kind of, I felt like I was getting allusions to is that you know, wellness is complicated because wellness is also going to tool the state used against black and brown people to justify all types of violence, right? And harm, right? And then at the same time, um, it is something that people, when we think about regulatory wellness or like, you know, support around that is space and rest is something that's been denied black and brown people for so long, right? So, you know, and, and, it, and it inherently kind of has this kind of ableist connotation, you know, like I think that's the deeper the deeper that disability justice has really kind of helped us dive into that reality, the more you recognize the limitations of this language, you'd be like, oh, wellness. But you know, it's, it's what we say, right? You know, because um, like, because inherently in wellness is kind of this, uh, this assumption that we're all going to achieve this collective state of us all being in the same, whatever robot regulation pattern that looks like, right? You know, which is really about ableism, right? It's like, we're all gonna talk about our feelings the same way and we're all gonna be assertive communicators. Are we though? Is that really gonna happen? Is that really what's gonna happen? And we're never gonna have episodes. We're never gonna be depressed because I'm like, I don't think that's realistic, right? So all that to say, I struggle with the term wellness. Mental health, of course, has similar connotations and dangers. Um, you know, healing justice, I like to use a lot. A lot of people have a lot of different ideas of what that means, right? Like, so it doesn't always connect, but um. I will say, uh, so just starting there, I think my intention and a hope with as a facilitator of the vision of Beam, because that's really my work. Like I always tell people like, you know, um, I help hold a container for this amazing work to happen with all these brilliant people and then they execute the work. We execute it together um, from the finance department to the actual implementation on the ground to the people who are a part of our community who we resource. It's all that, right? So I'm just facilitating. But my hope is that through the work that people get more skills and support to support themselves and to support other folks, right? And that those skills they get, that framing they get, the, the different emotional framework that is really rooted in healing justice is one that helps them honor their own unique pattern of being, relating, and honor their own unique cognitive way of showing up in the world without feeling like they gotta shame themselves to be something else. Yep. And, and be able to get skills and tools to be in love with that and be in, uh, be in relationship with that in a way that feels good for them, but also be able to um, actively transform broader systems and structures to also create spaces for themselves and other folks 
to be in relationship with themselves in a way that it centers dignity, it centers compassion. That's what I'm hoping, you know what I mean? That's a hope. And so like, there's ways we do that, right? Like, you know, training, primarily what we do, right? We're a training institution, training folks on healing justice, peer support skills, understanding ableism, understand the history of trauma in black communities, um, understand the limitations of the medical model, the DSM's history, those things. Um, and then of course, grant making, which is just giving people the money to do what people, amazing people do. It's not just being, there are people in our community who do dope work. So yeah, so that's kind of like high level, I guess, how we do the work and also all of my issues with the term wellness. Sorry, I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, I've never liked the term wellness. Like, like just honestly, I've never liked the term wellness. Um, but I, I've understood like a lot of people have identified with it. And I think I've come full circle with it almost. Like for a while it was like, well, why don't you go for a walk or something, do some yoga, stretch you know oh you're you're feeling sad well you just have to move a little you know get over it right uh it's it's that it's that belittling uh demeaning right uh approach to wellness at times right but but when rest is like 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 your ancestors your elders many people in your life haven't been able to rest or really enjoy the fruits of life in a lot of ways when you've come to that realization, there's a resonance, right, with uh, taking that intentional time around wellness. So it's like, mm, there's a lot to that. There's a lot to that, right? There's a lot to it. It makes me think about a, a post that um, Erica Hart posted and they put up on their social media that kind of encapsulates it for me. It's like, the post was something to the extent of, Make sure you're hydrated so you can deal with your exploitation and be hydrated. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, so I feel like that's almost like what is wellness kind of becomes in the culture. Like it, it never goes to a structural analysis or a systemic analysis. It's all about like, yeah, just which is which is rooted in like, you know, dominant mental health models, right? It's just like, you know, you be, we're gonna help you cope, but we're not gonna change the systems that are actually creating violence and harm towards you and facilitating uh, further dysregulation for you. Like, you know, we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna like work on the rent. We're just gonna like give you a yoga session, which yoga is great. I'm a yoga clear, I'm a yoga teacher, but that's that's going to be a you know a pin. And like if if my if my rent is so absorbent that I can't afford food or I can't afford like you know what I mean, like to pay for my kids going getting school uniforms, whatever that is, it's not it's not a solution that can um transform systems. So I think that's what and that's that I think that's kind of getting to what you talk about with wellness why it's so irritating because it's like just take a walk. I'm like, well, I'm depressed because you know, um, fascism, I'm not sure if that's gonna, like, you know what I mean? Like, is that the, is that the solution right now, right? You know, so there's a lot there. It's like, my rent is $3,000. It's okay, here's a free yoga class. You'll be all right. <laughs> right, you know, it's like, mm, I don't know <laughs> strategy right now that people need. Oh my goodness, that's so great, so great. But I think with that context, you know, thinking about wellness as a tool for liberation and all that. I want to get to mental health liberation. Um, I had seen some posts and just some, some, some knowledge sharing uh, from, from, from Beam about this, uh, about talking more about mental health liberation. And, you know, many movements have talked about the concept of liberation of queer liberation, uh, in the context of mental health liberation, we've talked about mad liberation, but something about mental health liberation, I feel is, is so encompassing and resonant to uh, many folks 
who might be experiencing emotional distress, who have had mental health diagnoses, right? Um, that uh, liberation exists in many different contexts, right? So let's talk about mental health liberation. What, what is the mission right now with, uh, with y'all and mental health liberation? What, what do you find so important about it in our society? I have a lot of thoughts around it, so. Yeah, you know, the genesis of it came out of just our discontent with the framing of minority mental health month, right? Mm-hmm. And there is always the psychic, emotional subtext of language and minor is one of them, right? Those words that people are like, ooh, it just feels yucky. And I wanna hold that feels yucky, even as I hold that, of course, the genesis of that minority mental health month is the work of a black woman, B.B. Moore Campbell, who and during an era when there was very little discourse publicly about mental health to the point that we have it now, right? And so terminology changes, we can expand terminology and also honor the legacy and power and the work it took for B.B. Moore Campbell and the community around her to make that possible, right? So I'm holding both, right? Um, so we wanted to, cause um, we want to expand the frame cause there is something very patronizing I think that happens to everybody who's not white in the United States. We're just kind of like the POC people, right? You know, and what happens in those frameworks is it erases the relationships between us We just become in relationship to whiteness and not to each other. Like what is my relationship to the South Asian Indian community? Like what is my relationship to, you know, um, Latinx folks who are not of African descent? Like what, is that, what, what does that look like? You know what I mean? Like what does my community look like in that way? Um, and so I think that there, it does a disservice to the diversity and power of our communities, but it also erases the fact that we have building to do with each other and we have reparative work to do with each other in our communities, right? And, but, but the lens is always everybody but the white people. <laughs> All we do is look over here and not look within, uh, look in the, look in the, within the POC frame. So that's one beef I have with it. Um, the other piece around mental health liberation, like I, I love the term because it's like inherently for me when I hear it, I'm like, yes, liberating ourselves from mental health as a framework, right? You know what I mean? That's the first thing I think about, like liberating ourselves from that framework, right? You know what I mean? Which is, you know, a big part of why we wanted to push that forward, right? Like how could that's li- mental health liberation means like we actually liberate ourselves from this. Like, you know what I mean? Like what, and like, I think that what that looks like for me is really kind of liberating ourselves from systems and framings and understandings that continue to situate ableism at its core, continue to situate sanism at its core, and really moving to a neurodiversity approach, an approach of equity, approach of like equity kind of triggers me a little bit, but like, you know what I mean? But like a, a, an approach that really is about creating a world that honors the unique distinctions between how, how we all show up in the world, cognitively, emotionally, uh, spiritually, whatever that is, creating a world that centers this is how people show up. Now we need to build a world that supports people however they show up, as opposed to creating a world that says, this is the, this is the way everybody should show up. And let's, let's create a world that only supports them. And then everybody else is less than, right? So what does the world look like when we reimagine it in that liberatory frame? And that's just something I'm always thinking about. I'm like, what does that look like? How, does, how, how will we all feel? You know, how would our folks feel supported? Um, whether they, um, you know, quote unquote, have diagnosed a diagnosed condition or not, because I think that the whole bucket I can open with diagnoses, and we often do, like you know, um, a lot of our folks don't have the privilege of diagnoses sometimes, or just, or just don't have the comfort with institutions to get diagnoses, and so they cope in other ways, right? And so, and then there's a lot of questions too about 
the nature of diagnosing itself. And, uh, you know, like I'm a little bit of a, I think people know this about me. I'm like obsessed with the history of the DSM. I'm like, what the hell? How did this even happen? This is, and the more I get into it, the more infuriating the history is. It's just bizarre, right? And because I mean, because like, there's, there's wow. the truth that we're, you know, and I think that like, you know, even white like scientists and leaders have been like, y'all, this is not based in science. Like what is, like this is all observational. And we're, when we, we interact with them as if they are medical in the way we think of medical, like a blood test, or we think of like, you know what I mean? And like, there's a lot of gray area there. So, so there's a lot of, um, so I think a mental health liberation, thinking about all those things, those conversations and creating that kind of world and get into that. And I think this is the second year we've done it. Next year, we're trying to plan it to be big and trying to think about partners. You know, we're still feeling it out and see how people are responding to it. But there's been a lot of people being like, yeah, minority, mental health month is weird. <laughs> Let's figure out how to get somewhere else. <laughs> oh, every time someone's like, oh, minority mental health month, look, I thought of you. I'm just like, oh. <laughs> 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 don't think of me that way get out of here what is this um but yeah i think and then and i mean obviously there's been that transition right to bipoc mental health month there's a whole thing with that right the context of health the context of our lives you can't just lump us all together <laughs> i mean you know i was on another uh there's another uh panel for something it was um is the psychedelics and uh madness and harm reduction conference and we were, on, we were on a BIPOC panel and we had discourse around the term BIPOC and we brought up the fact that uh, we preferred the term global majority. And we we're like, how about that? How about we're just the global majority? They're uh, ready. They're ready. <laughs> <laughs> they ready. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, on the term mental health liberation, when I think about Black and Brown folks, it makes me think particularly about the history of the Detroit riots and the term, uh, you know, and the and, and, and the utilization of schizophrenia as a diagnosis. Um, so many, there were so many black folks who were detained in institutions, right, during the Detroit riots and their diagnosis of schizophrenia as it was read in their notes was due to the fact that they were associated with the civil rights movement and their civil unrest was, was, was causal to their diagnosis. And I'm like, and under what science, under what grounds, why do we believe this? You know, why, why do we buy this? And then, you know, I, I do a lot of different videos on this mental health history. And I think the reason why is because a lot of these institutions and diagnoses are grounded in that prejudice, right? So when I think about mental health liberation as it applies to black and brown folks, it's critical. Like it's like, it's really, really critical because you got the Hiawatha Asylum for Insane Indians that, you know, uh, detained and incarcerated all of those indigenous people. And you have many of these diagnoses where at their root was just causal harm, you know? So I, I, I really appreciate the concept of mental health liberation. How do you think we can more readily apply mental health liberation in our communities and our spaces and well one thing um i want to add on to it and just like i, I love you lifting up the history of the detroit riots and the ways in which schizophrenia as a diagnosis has been used against black and indigenous folks and also that like that history you know extends even beyond the detroit riots right there's so many like uh there's so many examples 
um, of schizophrenia, particularly being used to justify the incarceration of, you know, of, of, of uh, leaders who are doing radical work around healing and justice, right? Like, you know, black leaders, brown leaders. So like, you know, there's definitely, and that's, and that's the place where we kind of bump up into a lot of challenges when doing healing work or healing justice work is that for black folks, most of our primary engagements with what we call the mental health industrial complex, it's almost indistinguishable from the carceral institutions from the prison industrial complex, right? People are like, you know, we're in communities when we were doing a lot of like, when I first started doing trainings and I would like ask people, what does the word mental health mean to you as a way to kind of get at the, get it, get at the insight? People immediately would say, the social worker took my cousin away. You know, my brother who had an episode and was at a store and then got arrested. And now he's been in the system since then, right? Like, you know what I mean? And never was able. So um, it makes me think about those connections there as well um, in terms of just like the, the ways in which diagnosis can and, and it continues to be used to stifle movement, but also the ways in which um, di diagnosis is used to harm our folks, you know what I mean? To terrorize our folks really by these institutions, you know? So yeah, so I think liberation is getting away from all those things, liberating ourselves from that mental health framework, liberating ourselves and creating new systems. And um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and still is used, you know, like there's a, Aonosignosia, which is like when someone doesn't agree with their diagnosis or believes their diagnosis is indeed a mental illness. And some of these, uh, you know, being labeled non-compliant, you know, uh, are uh, oppositional defiance disorder, which yeah. isn't actually, I want. yeah, right? Like, oh, there's, there's just so many of these uh, diagnoses that continue to exist and be utilized in these ways. <laughs> And the absurdity that, you know, I mean, essentially when we talk about the history of the DSM, what you know, you know, that these diagnoses were collective observations and framing created by like, you know, these five white men who got together to make what we now know as a DSM, right? And then, you know, this, this rush in the 1960s and 70s to find scientific validation for it, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like it's in the 80s, like really struggling. Like we're gonna find bipolar in the blood. Well, this thing that you've created Actually, we can't correlate that to something here yet. We can, there's some like, you know, and so that is just intriguing and fascinating, right? To like read that and be like, oh my God, what in the world have the people done? Like, you know what I mean? What have the people done? Like, you know, it's, it's just a lot. <laughs> so it's so right on. It's so true. And the, and the thing is, is that it's just, when you, when you speak about these things, it's immediately that association of your anti-science versus you are um, pro speaking to the human suffering condition, the oppression that exists in many communities. And I, uh, yeah. I, I tackle with that a lot. I'm like, how, how do we distinguish this? Like just as a socially, like in our society, how do we reach that point where we're like, we're acknowledging this history, we're acknowledging these issues here, and we're actually doing something to change this, do that work. And I mean, I guess that's when we get into abolition work, because a lot of people talk about prison abolition, but they're not willing to kind of go in that direction of psychiatric abolition or talking about liberation in the context of mental health, because they're basically like, yeah, you can get rid of all the other prisons, except for the ones for the mentally ill, in quotes, right? So what do we do with that? What, how, how, do we, how, how do we get to the root of our sanest society? And I, 
I know you don't have the answers to that, and maybe I don't quite, but I think we know we know what we're introducing, right? These yeah. these ideas of collectivism to transform our society. You know what's fascinating to me? I want to just piggyback to one thing you said about being perceived as being anti-science when you've challenged diagnostic criteria. But you know, the NIH and many institutes and many scientists would be like, actually, we have, we're not that, are you questioning science when you question DSM? Because is that based on is that rooted in? You know, like, I mean, the, the, the whole history of, of even these white institutions really having a lot of questions about diagnostic criteria and really trying to develop other kind of mediums to actually uh, uh, to diagnose folks that aren't so observation-based, right? Like, you know, and self-report, all these pieces, right? So there's a, so even the absurdity of somebody being like a science, you're critiquing science, like actually, when you think about it, am I critiquing science? Like, what am I critiquing here actually? Cause it's, some, it's, some, it's a little bit grayer than that, right? Like when you get deeper into that piece. So just lifting that up and like, um, I, I was reading, um, I just finished a couple of months ago reading Thomas Ensel's book um, from healing, uh, healing from mental health to mental illness. And he's a former, you know, um, director of the NIH and, you know, has some like, some brilliant things that I definitely align me. And then some things I was like, absolutely not. This is absolutely terrible and horrifying. Like there was one portion in like, Thomas, I would love to talk to you about it if you hear this, but brilliant. But like, you know, that when they're talking about a tool to, to discern speech patterns and be able to alert people if someone's having an episode, I was like, that sounds horrible. Like, you know, cause like looking at your speech patterns to be able to detect, oh, they might be going closer to an episode cause your speech pattern has shifted over. Oh, I'm like, that, sounds that's the police right like that's policing that is not like you know but then also has some really brilliant things to offer in terms of critiquing the dsm and saying that we do need new tools and diagnostic tools and that uh we'd also need better training because that's one piece i would love to talk to you about vesper like we're in this weird moment where every, like i'm grateful everybody's talking about mental health i'm really grateful we're having more conversations it gets a little sticky and i think that what's also what we haven't hit yet which i think we're about to hit that moment is the moment where people realize, oh wait, the therapist training profession, these people aren't as trained as we think they are in what we think they are trained in. Like, you know, um, Dr. Insel talked about like 60% of these of therapists, quote unquote, are not trained on scientific-based interventions for supporting people with serious mental illness. And we've seen this happen where we like are trying to find people who are like, Hey, this person is struggling with bipolar. I don't know how to deal with that. I'm like, what is it? You got a PhD. What do you what did you got a PhD in mental? What? You got a how you know? What are you talking about? Like, you know what I mean? Like, and I understand people have specialties. I'm not dismissing that there are specialties for different people, but we've hit up against people who come out of programs that really do a lot of theoretical teaching, don't really go into really kind of heavy interventions. Like, you know, finding a black person to do DBT is like, we gotta go. We're like looking at Narnia, we've got to open up closets and hunting for like stuff like that, right? Like it's ridiculous. But I think we're in this moment where it's going to become increasingly evident that the field itself at large, um, the one therapists are human and and also the field at large has some significant structural and um, change that need to happen for accountability, for uh, uh, anti-ableism, anti-ableist, anti-sanist discourse to really get in there because it's it's not how it's operating at large in many ways, you know? So you think we're going to come to that reckoning, maybe like I, I wonder, you know, like there are moments where I'm like cautiously optimistic and then I'm like, I don't know if I want to like really, really invest that much into it. Cause I'm, 
I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the moment where it's like, all right, well, we made it this far. Goodbye. <laughs> you know, um, or it's performative. Right. And I feel like I'm just in, the, in these constant layers of like, what is all of this? Um, and at the same time, you know, it's just a, a lot of the things that you're describing, uh, a lot of that gets drawn back on us. Right. It, it's uh, the whole idea of, uh, well, black and brown folks don't want mental health services. They're, you know, they don't want to do this. Like, like it, it's, it's thrown back on us. Um, and I'm just like, I'm like, how long? How long are we going to keep doing this? Never looking at this, the, the issue structures themselves, now they're designed as the problem and, the, and what they're a part of, but like it's all on our fault. You know, I think another piece of it too is that I think that like the future of what quote unquote healing and wellness will look like in this country that and like what what I hope to help cultivate and curate along with all the amazing people who are doing it collectively is strategies and systems that look like the PRS space that you talked about earlier. Um, strategies and solutions that look like some of the strategies we support, like you know, healing circles in communities that are easily mm -hmm. accessible, right? Which healing circles are just a form of peer support, right? And then also um supporting things like tapping, supporting strategies like, you know, that because I think we also um we also are still in a moment where there is still kind of therapy supremacy as the only strategy to help people regulate. And you know what I mean? It's either like therapy supremacy and then it goes into like, you know, hiking and people are like, girl, anybody doing that. Like, you know what I mean? So there's no there's no else there. Whereas like I think tapping and EDMR, other strategies that are a little bit less um, inaccessible or can be less inaccessible, if that makes sense, I think. I think that tapping particularly and, and like help folks and help people feel empowered to share with other people. I feel like that's what's gonna change our landscape. It's not going to be us waiting on therapists, like, you know what I mean, to do it all. Therapists are important. Trained therapists who are in dignity and ethical and who have a healing justice framework are critical. Um, and psychiatrists who have that as well are critical. They can't be the only answer. And, I, and that answer can't also be that the, we have these things and we still have, um, we don't have you know, rent stabilization and affordable rent. We still don't have health healthcare. We still don't have, cause it's just gonna like, we're just gonna be talking in circles. And you know, like we're still talking in circles. You know, people are activists from before, from generations before have been saying the things we're saying. Um, it's just the conversation shifts as things begin to move a little bit. So. I know his thoughts there. Yeah. Uh, no, I definitely. There's there's been many a time where, where I've referenced a lot of pieces that activists have said in the past. You know, like uh, co-optation of movements. I'm always just like, well, there's been this fight between how do you financially sustain a movement, right, and how do you avoid co-opting it, right, and that struggle. And I'm like, well, there's a framework that's already been, like, like, people have already done a lot of this work. And then, you know, I see us arguing amongst each other, and it's like, that's exactly where they want us. I mean, in a lot of ways. Um, so, so there's difficulty there, but I do think at the same time, there's, um, there's so much importance to two ideas that I find that are accessible to the wider community. And that's really why when we were talking about mental health liberation, I do think that a shift away from the context of mental health awareness to mental health liberation can be a potential avenue, one of many avenues, right, to then introduce those ideas. Um, 
I don't think people are thinking about carceral mental health. I don't think people want to have that conversation around carceral mental health. Um, people view the mental health system as the system they can turn to as, you know, when, when they're looking for help, you know, um, when they, when they want to uh, find their child help, right? But what does that help actually mean? Is it putting away a family member? Is it putting away yourself? Even if you voluntarily go in, you can't come out. So is it actually voluntary? You know. Yeah. And are people really looking to that system for support? Like, you know what I mean? Like, are they really going to it? I think a lot of folks are just not like engaging it because they, they don't trust it inherently, you know? They don't look and see the mental health system. Because I think there's, there's and it's, I think some of it's deeply connected to class as well. Because I feel like even in Black communities, it's like, Therapy is like Sunday morning on the couch and I'm sitting with my therapist and I'm telling them about, like, you know what I mean? That's this kind of ableist, kind of elitist vision of therapy that people are often pushing when they like go to a therapist. It's like, you, you, can, you can see it in the tweets and the conversations. Therapy has become this kind of medium. You can't get a man. So that's why you need to go to therapy. Like, wait a second. Like, okay, this, which is very different from, yeah. I am not able, like I am literally, um, struggling with a variety of perceptions that I'm seeing that are clouding my ability to be able to move in my family and community. That's a different challenge, right? But the challenge we see uplifted is, you know, oh, I can't find a man or, oh, my husband's upset at me and I'm Sunday brunch. And that's the, that's the therapy narrative for those folks who are privileged to get in that space. For the vast majority of people in the United States, the therapy we're getting access to is not that, right? I mean, it's coming through some carceral institution. It's coming through some state mandate, which feels oppressive and, and like, you know, dysregulating itself. And so I think it's also demystifying that, cause I mean, like, you know, like many people say now, we don't really have a mental health system. This is like a, a patchwork of, you know, there's public community centers, there's people grassroots thing, efforts, there's really private insurance companies who are really running all of it, you know what I mean? Um, and guiding all of it. We don't have in terms of an integrated care system that people can go to to get the support they need on multiple levels. That doesn't exist in the United States as robustly. I think it's, it's growing in different pockets, but robustly across the nation, that's not a thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so I think that we're still figuring that out. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll continue to figure it out for a while. I mean, where, where do you think we'd be in? maybe 10, 15 years, should the, should the political state of our country and, you know, the climate state not really uh, cause that much harm, um, although doubtful, where do you think we will be in terms of mental health activism, mental health communities, spaces? Well, I can envision, I don't know if it's a vision that'll be all encompassing for everybody, but I would love to see a world where neurodiversity is taught in high schools and middle schools and in elementary schools from the very beginning, where care looks like a community or a school, or I'm sorry, a community or a city has um, not only very visibly visible peer healing support services, healing circle services, has peer respites, um, where uh, psychiatric care has been redesigned and reimagined to a point where it is actually integrated into communities and not prison-based um, to where like, like where that 
is normalized, right? Where cognitive and emotional differences are normalized and not um, situated in deep sanism. Like where there was an assumption that like the way we teach, the way we learn, the way we, you know, television programs operate, all kind of operate with this kind of inherent understanding of the world is uh, full of people of different cognitive and emotional and capacity and engagements, right? Uh, that is my dream of what that could look like. You know, when someone calls to crisis care, someone comes over who is with lived experience or who is um, not, a, not a police officer, but trained to be able to support them, takes them or takes them if they choose to, to a peer respite, to be connected with community. You know what I mean? That place doesn't feel like it's like, you know, the food is like from the same prison place, the prisons. Like, you know, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like that. It feels different. And yet at the same time, we find that medium between how do we also make it feel different and also uh, sometimes we need to be protected from ourselves, right? Like, you know what I mean? And that's very real. Like, how do we navigate in and figuring out that gray area of the consent piece, right? Like, you know, which is something that we're all struggling with, like consent as much as possible. And I often think of that story that, I'm, uh, that I was told a lot by my early trainer, who was a psychologist, Dr. Um, Linda. She would tell a story about the two folks who were living under a bridge, who were houseless living under a bridge in a tent, right? And they, were, they had a case manager at a community center. And the community case manager was always like, always consent. We never, you know, force anybody into anything, consent, consent-based, consent-based. And one person um, at one point in their journey was able to basically uh, on their own volition and desire, like, you know, got access to medication and care and did what they felt like they wanted to do with their support. And, but when, and the other person, you know, continued to like uh, struggle in different ways that didn't necessarily change the state of their condition, quote unquote, or state of their, their material conditions, right? And, but the person who um, did move to a different quote unquote plate in their material conditions was furious and irate at the person. Like you could have done, you could have helped my change things for me a long time ago. Why didn't you come and put me in a carceral institution? Which is interesting, but I was like, wow, that really struck me. It's like, and do this, and I could have been different. Whereas the other person is like, I'm grateful that you have never done that to me, right? So you know, what I mean, it's like it gets into the nuances and the trickiness of that that I don't think that we have figured out yet. I mean, I don't think we're ever gonna. I don't know figure out. I think we need more stronger frameworks around it, um, because. I'm not a fan of non-consent-based care, but I also know what it's like to be in a state where I need to be supported with, yep. with what, um, how I might show up against myself or hurt harm myself, you know what I mean? So I think there's, like, mm -hmm. there's a lot of layers to it, you know? Both things can be true at the same time. I've been saying that a lot, talking about those concepts of polyphony and how those multiple truths are important to hold. And I think when it comes to the work of mental health and disability rights activism, we have to hold those multiple truths just for, for our people in general. So, uh, you know, I've, I, I really appreciate that perspective and in, in thinking about what we need. Are there any like final thoughts that you want to like leave our listeners with today? Oh my goodness, we're almost at the end. I'm like, that's, that's what we need three more hours. Um, <laughs> final thoughts. I guess the biggest piece is I'm all about imagination. A long time ago, Adrian Marie Brown told me that we're in a crisis of the imagination. Like, you know, like mm. that people, that we have a community of folks who have a lot of power who are healthy holding to an imagination they have inherited and not to an imagination they can conjure that's like more dynamic and more loving. 
And so I just really invite us all to just think about like what we could imagine this different and how do we materially make that real? And I think that's really all that I can do is just try to figure out, um, that's, that's what all my work is all about. Like, okay, this isn't loving. This isn't supportive. This is harmful. I don't have, I have, what, what power do I have to help uh, co-facilitate the creation of something more imaginative and loving for people of all mental conditions, physical conditions, chronic illnesses, body, gender, race, what does that look like, you know, in my pocket and corner of the world? And I think I just invite people to do that and figure out what that is. And it doesn't have to, it's not always something ginormous, like, you know what I mean? Sometimes it's like, you know, I make soup for my neighbor. Like, you know what I mean? Sometimes it's like, you know what I mean? And sometimes it's like, it's all those things that they reverberate and, and you know, lead to so much. So I think just imagine it. I will leave folks with like, we can have a different world. We can make it. It's already here in some ways. We already are making it. We're making it come and we can also spread. We can also uh, continue to grow that world um, in a way that is loving and dignity centered by modeling it and not waiting on the oppressors, the oppressive or the oppressive centered vision. Wow. 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 You've left me with so much to think about and I hope you've left folks with so much to think about that imagination, that collectivism. It's beautiful. Thank you for joining me today, Yolo. This has been an awesome conversation. I hope people are left with some thoughts of transformative mental health and what they can do. Right. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for all the work that you do for our communities, the education, the advocacy, the care, the thoughtfulness. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot from you and a lot of other folks have. So thank you for building more platforms for us to kind of conjure more imagining, you know, and make it possible. So thank you. So appreciate it. I look forward to seeing what we could all do together more and more. So.